before we really get into the sermon per se, I'll bring up again, <coughs> how are we doing at this feast in worshiping the King, the Lord of hosts? Remember, that is why we come here, and uh, hopefully by the end of this feast, we could all say, I am closer to God than I was eight days ago. My relationship with Him is better. My prayers are more meaningful. I feel closer to Him than I did. That is the goal, and that is the purpose of this feast. Now, I think we are having a lot of good social interaction and fellowship together through the activities that have been planned and prepared for us, and by uh, fellowship otherwise, <clears throat> and hopefully we can all be closer to each other and draw nearer as a family as this time goes by, but it's getting down to a precious few. This is the sixth, and we're well on our way through it, <clears throat> and we only have the seventh and eighth left. But hopefully our prayers can be more dynamic, more meaningful, more sincere, uh, deeper, by the time this ends. Otherwise, we've kind of wasted our time. We've kind of wasted God's time. And he was very upset in Isaiah 1 for people not keeping the feast either at the appropriate time or perhaps, and I think more so, the manner in which it was done. And it's difficult for you and me to do better, do more, to concentrate and to focus more. And I know my prayers lately, I don't mean just during the feast, but over a period of time, <clears throat> have been more and more, draw me closer, help me. Because we of ourselves cannot attain righteousness. We can't get close to God without his help. Righteousness and salvation are a gift of God. It is he, he who works salvation in us, as he put it. We would have never even understood the truth had he not opened our minds, and people who don't have their minds opened by God and his Spirit simply cannot understand the truth. It is foreign to them. They can understand religions. They can believe certain doctrines of certain things. But to understand, to comprehend, to grasp the truth, it's beyond the capability of the human mind in and of itself. Cannot be done. No man can come to me except the Spirit of the Father draw him. So the very fact that you're here means he has drawn you to one degree or another. And we need to keep praying that he draw us in even closer. That he generate a lot of the enthusiasm and the zeal in and through us that we sometimes have difficulty doing because we are simply contrary to God and it is automatic to pull the shoulder back when we hear what we need to hear. We don't like to hear it for the most part. And the only reason you might like it at all is because of the spirit within you that reacts positively to it. It isn't your human nature that reacts positively to God's ways. It just isn't. He's told us very clearly in more than one place that we are deceitful and desperately wicked and the human heart is against him and cannot know him. So it is he who started this in us. And we need to yield to him and let him finish the job. Well, it's mostly about yielding to his spirit, not quenching it by our human nature, but yielding and being led by it. <clears throat> and we have asked him on many occasions already in this feast, opening and closing prayers, to be here with us, to help us, to guide us. And now we must be sure we follow through, because I would love it, brethren, and so would you, if when we finish the eighth day, God could look down and smile favorably upon us, saying, Yes, you came. You worshipped me. You put me first during that eight days. And as I said before, 
there's no excuse not to, really. We don't have to go about our daily work, our daily chores in the same way. We have time to fellowship with each other. We have time to fellowship with God. And if we blow it by... It doesn't mean we can't entertain. It doesn't mean we can't socialize. It doesn't mean we can't be relaxed and have some downtime. But it also gives us that time that sometimes we use an excuse. Well, I just don't have time. I just, I just don't have time. And then when we finally have time, we find other things to do. That's just the humanness of us. So do some of those things. That's okay. I'm not saying we shouldn't. And I'm not trying to get on us. I'm just saying let's be sure that we accomplish spiritually what it is that we came here to accomplish. Because our relationship with God is going to mean everything in the next months and years ahead. So with that, as an introduction, let's go to Luke 7. I want to pick it up today in verse 11. We left off here with the centurion and how he had such incredible faith because he understood authority and the uh, way authority works when we have employees or soldiers or someone under our watch or our care or our direction that they do what they are asked. And he, being a Roman, understood a chain of authority and command and that whatever the father said, the son would do, and whatever the son said would happen. He had belief and trust in that chain of command and that God's will would be done. And we pray, as we went through in the sample prayer, thy kingdom come, that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we're praying for that chain of command to come from the Father through Christ down to us and that we might learn and follow his way. Now, I'm not in the same position that that Roman centurion was in the Roman army. It is not my job to be a mediator or a go-between between you and the Father and the Son. That's where people get all messed up on government and authority in the church. The chain of command goes from the Father through the Son and directly from you back to the Father through the Son. You have absolute direct access to the two greatest beings in the universe. You pray in Christ's name, in his authority. That was not there prior to Christ's death. No one could approach the Father. But when that veil of the temple was rent in two when Christ died, through his resurrection and his acceptance by the Father, we have ever since had direct access to our Father in heaven. So it is not my job to between, be between you and him, and I wouldn't want that job. My job is to stand to the side and point you to them. That's my job. I get accused of lording it over you. All I tell you is what the Lord tells me to say to you out of his word. If you think I lord it over you, you don't know what lording it over is. I'm sorry. We had some of that in Worldwide, where they were coming around inspecting your houses and inspecting your kitchens and checking you out and telling you what to do and what color car to buy and on and on and on it went in some cases, not all cases, but some. And you were under constant, under a constant barrage of vocal instruction about what you ought to do. And the ministry did try, in many cases, to come between you and God. And you don't see that here. You really don't. How often do I come around your house and tell you what to do and how to do it and how to go about it and what you ought to drive and how you ought to walk and what kind of dishes you ought to use? They did that. What kind of dishes? If you served them wine in a cup, where's the wine glass? You know? On and on it went. 
I try to stand beside, tell you what God says, and then you've got to go do it. If you're going to be closer to God when this is over, it's not because I wanted it over and made you do it. All I'm doing is standing here pointing you toward God and for you to go do it yourself. If you don't do it, it's not on me, it's on you. See what I mean? Verse 11 of Luke 7. It came to pass the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of the disciples went with him, and much people. Now when he was come near to the gate of the city, behold, there was a dead man carried out. I was on his way to the cemetery. The only son of his mother, and she, was a widow. And much people of the city was with her. And when the Eternal saw her, he had compassion on her, and said to her, Weep not. And he came and touched the buyer, and they that bare him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, Arise. And he that was dead sat up and began to speak, and he delivered him to his mother. That's the kind of mediator the kind of Savior, the kind of Christ that we worship, who is full of compassion. And there came a fear on all, and they glorified God, saying that a great prophet is risen up among us, and that God has visited his people. And this rumor of him went forth throughout all Judea and throughout all the region round about. A true resurrection of the dead is a pretty astounding thing. And that's what occurred here. Believe it or not, I believe it. I think you do too. That it actually happened. Now there are many examples in the New Testament of healings, of a few resurrections from the dead, the physical life, quite a few apparently when Christ himself died, and some that he did during his ministry, and even a few after that, through the apostles and through Paul even. That is going to happen again. God works in patterns. He tells us in Zechariah 3 that there will be signs and wonders during these coming months ahead. And if we are to wonder what kind of signs and wonders, then all we need to do is read the New Testament and see what kind of signs and wonders the Father and the Son concocted up to show who Christ was. The world does not know who God is anymore. They don't know who Christ is. They have a name, but they don't have a character. They don't have an understanding of who he really is and what he is going to do. And there are quite a few different events in the Bible that are going to show people who God is. One is the revealing of his temple treasures and other treasures there in Isaiah 45. He says that will let people know from the east to the west that he is God. So that is one way. Zechariah 3, as I said, and the signs and wonders that will occur there under the leadership of those whom God puts in charge that will occur. What kind of signs and wonders? Well, what has he done in the past? Is he going to make frogs live where frogs haven't lived before? Or is he going to do the same thing he's done in the past? Do some magnificent healings? Perhaps raise the dead? It's been done in the past, in every era, Old Testament, New Testament. But I think that it will happen again at the very end time, just as God has always done. That is the pattern. So we can take hope as we read these things. That this isn't just something of the ancient past that will never happen again, but that it is going to occur once more. Whatever you read here is a projection that was written down... (coughs) for those upon whom the ends of the world have come. So they aren't just history lessons, 
They are both history and prophecy all written together. And John, in verse 19, calling to him two of his disciples, sent them to Emmanuel, saying, Are you he that should come, or do we look for another? He heard what had happened. And uh, he wanted to get in contact and say, Is this it? Are we there? The things I've been preaching about, are they actually happening, and are you the man? Now, they had been cousins. Their mothers were well acquainted. And uh, they knew of each other. I'm sure they knew each other very well. But until Christ began to do some of these things, it might not have been obvious to John the Baptist that that's who he was. He knew the calling he had had because his father and his mother had coached him and told him about it, as we can read back in Luke 2. That his father spoke when he named him what he was supposed to name him, John. And when the men would come to him, verse 20, they said, John Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you he that should come, or look we for another? And in that same hour he cured many of their infirmities and plagues and of evil spirits, and of the many that were blind he gave sight. Through action, Christ told them who he was. He didn't just say, you know, I'm, I'm the Lord, of course I am. He just healed a whole bunch of people right there in their very presence as a witness to who he was. And when the real Christ begins to do that kind of real signs and wonders, it will be a witness who he is and where he is working. Then Emmanuel answered and said to them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. I'm not going to just testify, he said, who I am. He knew very well who he was. But he didn't brag about it. He didn't uh, proclaim it. He just says, go tell him what you've seen and heard. How that the blind see, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, to the poor the gospel is preached. Go tell John these things. He can make his own conclusions. And blessed is he, whosoever shall not be offended in me. All these things he did, right in this one town, and had many, many witnesses. Remember, many, many followed him, not only his disciples, but many followed him to this little town. And they would take the word back, but many would be offended anyway. In spite of eyewitness accounts of all that had occurred, they still would gang up on him, they would hate him, and the people would cry out for his death to Pilate. And Pilate didn't want to kill him, but the people cried out and the rulers of the Jews cried out, and it happened as God had said it would happen. <coughs> The same thing is going to happen very soon now. God, at the appointed, appropriate time, is going to begin to heal. The lame will walk, the deaf will hear, the dead may be raised. Those are promises throughout the prophecies. And they are promises that are made of the two witnesses in the end-time church and about 10% of the church is going to hear and heed, but the rest, 90%, will be offended in what is done. Ignore it, be offended by it, not believe it. Ah, rubbish. That can't be. The, con the conditions and things that Christ will do, he'll do them through men, but it is still he who will be doing them. And when the messengers of John were departed, he began to speak to the people concerning John. So he didn't talk about himself, but he talked about John. What went you out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? 
But what you went out, went out for you to see, a man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they which are gorgeously apparelled and live delicately are in king's courts. That wasn't the kind of man that God and Christ were using here. But what he would be apt to see, a prophet? Yes, I say to you, and much more than a prophet. We're told in another place that uh, he wore leather garments, probably rough ones, not real fine, fancy ones, but leather garments, and he ate locusts and honey, uh, kind of lived off the land. He would have been looked upon, perhaps in our society, as kind of a strange person. Uh, a recluse or a hermit or however you want to put it. But Christ said, that's the kind of person we sent on purpose. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, which shall prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those that are born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. So John was a man handpicked from the womb, named before he was born, sent to do a job, and did the job. And God said he was more righteous than any prophet that had come along. And yet, if any of us enter into the kingdom of God, we will at that point be greater than John the Baptist ever was at his best, walking the face of the earth. It does not matter how righteous Elijah or Job or John the Baptist or Daniel were, they were still human. And being human, they were by far behind anyone who will ultimately be made God. He's trying to make a point here. He always came back to the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter. John the Baptist is out there doing miracles. He himself was there doing miracles. But they were not, at that point, either one of them, in the kingdom of God. Now, Christ became much greater when he ascended to the Father than he was while he was on the earth. And he even said himself, and he meant it, of myself, I can do nothing. As a human being, he was helpless like everyone else, limited to the five senses, limited to the capacity of the human mind and human body. He called on the Father deeply in prayer, realizing how much he needed to be close to his Father in order to live a life without sin, and to perform these miracles that he was performing. Because that's where the power came from, was the Holy Spirit from the Father. And he recognized that and said it in so many words in several different places. <clears throat> Once your spirit, it doesn't matter how great anyone was who walked this earth, you will be far, far away, head and shoulders, above anyone who ever walked. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God being baptized with the baptism of John, but the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves being not baptized of him. They heard the word, but they rejected it, turned away. And the Eternal said, Whereunto then shall I liken the men of this generation, and of what are they like? What do I compare these people around here to, he said. They are like children sitting in the marketplace, and calling one to another, and saying, We have piped to you, and you have not danced. We have mourned to you, and you have not wept. In other words, it had none effect. No emotional value was there. They didn't react for good or for bad in that sense. They just ignored it or tried to. For John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking wine, and you say he has a devil. 
So he was abstemious. He ate locusts and wild honey and a, a probably a strange diet to you and me. <coughs> and he didn't drink wine. So they said he had a devil. Anybody who won't drink wine's got a devil. You know that. That's <laughs> strange. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. Christ drank wine. I don't know whether anybody's got any Baptist or Methodist left in them, but Christ drank wine. The kind that will make you tipsy is the kind he drank. Not just grape juice. So he came eating and drinking, and you say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine bibber, a friend of publicans and sinners. Damned if you do, and damned if you don't. Using a common modern expression. No matter what you do, you're going to be condemned, you're going to be negated, you're going to be ignored if possible, and it doesn't matter. You can't do it right to satisfy people. You can stand on your head or stand on your feet. It doesn't matter. You're not going to please people. But wisdom is justified of all her children. Let me nail that in a little harder. God is going to send two. One is in the spirit of John the Baptist, Elijah and Moses. He's going to send them with the same gifts, the same abilities, the same miracles that those men did. And they're going to be rejected by 90% of the church. Even if God sends you directly, purposely, as a human being, it just doesn't matter. Even those two, the God will have trained carefully, put them through all kinds of things to give them experience and knowledge of his word. He will have trained them very carefully. He always has. And yet 90% of the church will deny them, throw rocks at them, ignore them when they come. And the whole world will. <clears throat> so there are going to be very, very few who will listen to those whom God sends. It's the same as it always has been. They always stoned the prophets. I concluded the sermon the other day and didn't bring that in, but just like the former prophets, just like the apostles, those two also will be killed. And the whole world will rejoice over it. Including those who might have survived who are in the church. But the only ones who will be behind them and agree and understand will be those that God has separated out to do his work. So you can't please people. You know what? You can't please people if you're God in the flesh. They'll kill you. You can't please people if you're God in the Spirit, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, because they will disbelieve you. They won't accept your word. Do we realize how powerful Satan is and how strong our human nature is? It's just incredible. That's why God has to work salvation in us, and why he says in Isaiah 54 that their righteousness is of me. By nature, even we, as called out ones from the world, are self-righteous, and many times we epitomize Isaiah 65, which talks about those who say, don't come near me, I'm holier than you. And we react among ourselves that way all too often. A little self-righteous, a little better than you, and if I can put you down and I can be negative about you and gossip about you, then that makes me feel a little more righteous about me because I may not be much, but at least I'm better than you. So very, very human to be that way. God himself inspired and breathed these words. But you and I by nature are contrary. 
and they're hard words to hear. And look at the reaction of the people to John the Baptist and to Christ. <coughs> didn't matter. You drank wine or didn't. You ate a weird diet or ate the delicacies of the land and even sat down with the Pharisees once in a while when they invited you to eat. And usually he told them, even then he told them what they were. Verse 37, And behold a woman in a city which was a sinner, when she knew that Emmanuel sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. <coughs> that wasn't the attitude the Pharisees had. Now when the Pharisees which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this that touches him, for she is a sinner. He wasn't, of course, but that woman was. She was known around there as a sinner. You better believe she was known as a sinner. And this Pharisee knew her reputation. Did Christ say, I'm holier than you, get away from me, don't anoint my feet? Emmanuel answering said to him, Simon, I have somewhat to say to you. <laughs> and he said, Master, say on. I know that I just pointed out what a sinner this woman is, and I know he's going to congratulate me, he's going to praise me for recognizing the difference between that sinner and me, and how I'm all right, and how I chase that sinner away from him. I'm sure that was kind of what was going through his head, because that's the way he thought. <clears throat> so here he, he gives him an answer. Say on, I'm all ears, Master. Let's hear what you have to say. And then he probably sat up a little straighter and just was waiting for all the praise and honor and glory that was about to come to him because he wasn't like that woman. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors, the one owed 500 pence and the other 50. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both, wiped it out. All right, I forgive you. Don't worry about it. Let's start anew. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? The one that he forgave 500 or 50? One was a much, much bigger debt. And naturally you'd think that uh, the one who received the greater forgiveness would also be the one who loved him the most. So this Pharisee, Simon, answered and said, I suppose that he to whom he forgave most, and he said to him, You have rightly judged. I mean, if you flip somebody ten cents, they're not going to love you a whole lot. But if you give them a foul, uh, no, they're going to appreciate it. They're going to light up a little more. Uh, and he turned to the woman and said to Simon, See this woman? I entered into your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil you did not anoint, but this woman has anointed my feet with ointments. Wherefore I say to you, her sins, which are many, he recognized she was a woman who had not had that good a life, was an outright and open sinner, don't know just what they were, but they were there. Her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but to whom little is forgiven, the same loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. That wasn't the way this Pharisee expected this conversation to go whatsoever. 
And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgives sins also? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it doesn't matter how righteous we might think we are. We had better be careful in condemning others as sinners, had we not. Because that's the attitude this person was in, and therefore there was a very deep self-righteousness in him because he thought he was better than that lowly woman. Yes, she had literally many sins. But she had an attitude that touched his heart and unfolded all that compassion and mercy and forgave her. He didn't say anything about forgiving this Pharisee of his sins, did he? Holier thou than thou and self-righteous and therefore critical of others is totally ungodly. And this man had an ungodly attitude. If we treated one another as she treated Christ, and we treated Christ as he as she treated Christ, there would be no question. All our sins, no matter how bad they are or have been, will be forgiven. This woman was still a sinner when she came there, but she was also very humble and very meek and accepted him for who he was. She was forgiven. I'm spending quite a little time not just describing conditions in the millennium, though we may get to that. But Christ didn't spend a lot of time on that. Isaiah and some others did to some degree. But Christ emphasized more what the kingdom is like and what is necessary to be there. What attitudes we need to have. So for you and me, even though this might not be as pleasant as talking about the desert blooming as a rose, it's what is needed to help us achieve the kingdom of God. That's what we're here for. And this is the kind of story that Christ lived and what he inspired his disciples, later apostles, to write down for us. This must be what we need the most is to understand attitudes and things that Christ did, how people reacted to him, how they reacted to John, how they reacted to the apostles later, and how they will react here at the end. Humans being humans the same way. And the very first thing the prophet Zechariah said when he addressed the end-time church is don't be as your fathers. Don't stone the modern prophets the way they stoned the ancient prophets. But most people will. They just will. Don't be among them. Now let's go to Mark 4. And I want to pick this up in verse 11. Mark 4, verse 11. <clears throat> he said to them, Unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now he's speaking to you and me because unto us is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to them that are without, all these things are done in parables. We have been called, our minds have been opened, we should be able to read these things and understand them in the true spiritual light in which they were delivered. But he said the world won't get it. They'll think that they're nice little farm stories or parables, but they won't get the message. They won't apply it to themselves. They won't know what it means. Now what I'm trying to do is read these and bring out what it means to you and me. In our lives, these aren't just stories about 
some righteous man who walked the earth 2,000 years ago. These things are written for us right here, right now. And the lesson is here for us to get. Because now is our chance to be part of the kingdom of God. To understand the mystery when it is finally, fully revealed at the first resurrection. We can read about it. We can try to understand it. But we won't know until the resurrection what this was really and truly all about. There is no way for a human being to project himself into 1 Corinthians 15 and to fully grasp what it means to turn from physical to spirit. That's when the mystery will be revealed, Paul says right there. But we are given enough of God's Spirit to understand what the goal and the purpose is, even though we might not fully understand how it will happen until it does. So these things are done in parable for others, but not for us. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. God is reserving calling most people until the great white throne judgment, where they will be in a mood and an attitude, having been humbled by horrors of famine and pestilence, disease and war and the sword and dying, miserably on the earth. And when brought back to human life, they'll be ready to be taught. He says, if I let them understand now, and I forgave their sins, and then they just went on in them, I'd have to destroy them. If they understood and rejected, I would have to destroy them. And I don't want to do that because in the end I want to save them. Now you're in a different category, he says, speaking to the disciples. You're in a totally different category. You, I've decided to give understanding. And you, I know, will not just be forgiven and then go on in your sins, but you will grow. You will overcome. You will change. You'll be more like me. And I can give you the gift of eternal life. Now that's the category he's putting you and me in. We've been given a knowledge of the truth. We've been given to understand the mystery of God. The mystery of the ages. And he has confidence that you in this room will not go on as you have been, but you will be meek and you will be humble. And you'll be willing to wash his feet, even as we symbolically wash each other's feet at Passover time. It is a ceremony that reflects meekness and humility, washing somebody else's grubby, ugly old feet, or even new feet. And he said to them, verse 13, Know you not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? You understand this? Maybe you can understand others. And here he gave one. The sower sowed the word. Now this is connected to what he had just said. I'm going to give you the truth. I'm going to help you understand the mystery. I'm not going to give it to the rest of the world, but just to you a few. And it always has been a few. Fear not little flock. So in connection with what he just said, he gives this next parable. The sower sows the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, 
immediately they are offended. You don't grow a very good root system and you don't become entrenched and solidified on rock. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Now, where are we so far in here? Most of you have been around a while. So, when you learned the word, and family and friends and Satan tried to turn you away from it, you did not allow that to happen. When false leaders came into the church and tried to turn you away from God's truth, you didn't let it happen. Now, I don't think you must have fallen on stone because you at least established enough of a root system to still be here after time. Here we are, rooted and grounded in the truth. Now, the thorns <coughs> may be where our first current challenge begins to come in. Because time goes by, we become impatient, we begin to think God is slack concerning his promises, even though Peter warned us about letting that attitude come there in Second Peter 3. No, he's not slack concerning his promises. They will come to pass, even as he said. But if we are among thorns, don't be friends with the world, he says, because if you're a friend with the world, you're an enemy of God. That's already been read this feast, whether I did or somebody, I don't remember, but it's been read. What happens to them? <clears throat> the cares of this world, daily life, the things that we go through, the deceitfulness of riches, the American dream of accruing wealth, being rich. The lusts of other things. That could mean anything. <laughs> Lust, vanity, greed, jealousy, envy, all the works of the flesh, the various things that we can lust for. Choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Things that we want out of this life. Families, children, mates, riches, Material goods, praise, acclaim, power. There are many, many things that can affect a human being that can sidetrack us from being the bride of Christ, focusing on the bridegroom to come. This, this is a very real danger now for us who have come this far. Remember Matthew 24, he who endures to the end. Not he who goes halfway or three quarters of the way and says, oh man, this is too hard. I want to do this and I'm going to do that and I want to do that and I've denied myself all this time. I deserve it. I'm going for it. And it happens to some. But it will not happen to you and me. Because we're reading these words, we're hearing them, and we're letting them sink sink deep within us so that we will seek God with all our heart, mind, body, soul, and power. And that's why it won't happen to us. And I say that with confidence. Because I believe that you here are here sincerely to be part of the kingdom of God. If you were not, you would have already gone the way of the world. But recognizing the dangers that are all around us, you won't let it happen. You just won't let it happen. Because you'll go to God and he'll help you. Now, verse 20, these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, some a hundred. In other words, they don't quench the Spirit of God, they accept it, they 
wrap their arms around it. They hug it and hold it close to them. They hold the Father and the Son close to them. They come to have the attitudes of the Father and Son. And how do they bear fruit? They show the fruit of the Spirit. Let's go back there just for a moment to Galatians. Hold your finger here, but let's review that. Galatians 6. Above this are the works of the flesh, but verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, uh, moderation. Against such there is no law. Now, how are those fruits expressed? How are they expressed? Who are you around? Who can you express them to? They are not expressed just to you and me, Lord, because there is no such thing. No man is an island. He has called us to be part of a body that works closely together, functions well, and has love, joy, peace within the body. Go back to the book of Proverbs and see six things that God absolutely hates. I think that's in Proverbs 6, if I recall properly. These six things, verse 16 of Proverbs 6, does the eternal hate Here are things that are absolutely an abomination to God. That's the word that is used here. Hate and abomination. A proud look. When a look of pride comes across our face, God hates that. What do you mean saying that to me? What do you mean criticizing me? Pride comes before a fall. God hates, literally hates, any kind of pride. Lying tongue. It's an abomination to God. Hands that shed innocent blood. Even Christians who shed the blood of others spiritually by talking behind their backs, by accusing them, by putting them down. That is something God absolutely despises with all his heart. A heart that devises wicked imaginations. We let our minds play on things that are wrong, evil, sinful. Things we might dream up of that we do or like to do or want to do. He hates when we let ourselves daydream about things that are ungodly. Feet that be swift and running to mischief. Any kind of sin or malfeasance. A false witness that speaks lies. Are you sure? Are you absolutely sure when you so cheaply accuse another that what you are saying is absolutely right? Do you know? Did you see with your own eyes what that person did? Or is it second or third or fourth or fifth hand carried over from 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago that is thrown about and may or may not have any real substance at all. It's just what you heard. And you chose to believe and spread. God absolutely despises that. He hates it with a passion. It's an abomination. That's as deep a hate 
as there is. And he that sows discord among brethren. Anybody that says things that would cause people to look down upon or separate from each other, to cause discord, disunity, disharmony. Anybody who does that, and it doesn't matter if the things that they're saying are right or if they're wrong. If it leads to hurt feelings and discord and disunity between brothers in the church, God hates it with a passion. How many times has that been said, and how many different ways, by me and all our other speakers who read the Word of God? Did it fall on stony ground? Did it fall among thorns? Where did it fall? Why? Do we still have discord, disunity, disharmony, people who put each other down and speak negatively of each other? Why do we still have that? It's an abomination to God. It is not a fruit of the Spirit. What did we just read back here? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness. Goodness, faith, meekness, and moderation. Those are the fruits of the Spirit. Proverbs is talking about the works of the flesh. What will it be? Which ground did God's Word fall in with us? Does Satan take it away and replace it with his attitude? Does it fall on stony ground where work is not taken? Does it fall in thorns where it's crowded and choked and can't have enough to keep it alive? Or does it fall on good ground that produces fruit? Thirty, sixty, or a hundred. The fruit of the Spirit of God. We know what those fruits are. Now we need to produce them. Because he's told us in so many ways, in so many scriptures, that the way we treat each other, the way we speak of each other, is how he will judge us. He judged that woman who was a sinner. I'm not a fake sinner, a real sinner. And she had a meekness and a humility about her that he couldn't help but forgive. But the Pharisee was self-righteous and put the woman down and he didn't receive that blessing. Now, I don't know where we fell because our seed were broadcast. I think we fell within God's church among God's people. Here we have a chance to take root and grow deeply in Christ and to produce the fruit of the Spirit. There's the challenge. Will what we do among ourselves produce love, joy, and peace and those other things? Or will it, in the way we react, promote Discord, disunity, discouragement, depression, and frustration. One is godly, the other is not. And again, it doesn't matter whether the charges are right or wrong. In this woman's case, they were absolutely right. She was a sinner. Yes, I'm a sinner, she said. I agree. I'm not going to argue with that. I'm a sinner. But Christ chose to forgive her because of her attitude. And he will do the same with us. 
He's talking about the bare bones necessities that are required if we're going to be in the kingdom of God, is what he's discussing here. These aren't just nice sayings. And he said to them, verse 21, Is a candle brought to be put under a bushel or under a bed, and not to be set on a candlestick? For there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested, neither was anything kept secret that it should not that it but that it should come abroad, be known. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. He's told us we're to be a light to the world. So we'll be set on a hill in Zion to be a light to the whole world. The world will be torn apart in wars and rumors of wars and slavery and famine and pestilence. We will be given healing. We will be given blessings and have food and drink and protection and security. And he wants us set on a hill to be a light to the world. Not to be hid, but to be a light to the world. So that they can see a people full of love, of joy, of peace, of harmony, of closeness, of love. That's what this is all about. This isn't about you and me. This is about the kingdom of God. And it's about those few people that he is calling for a special calling right now before the whole world. James, Peter, John, Luke, all these people did their thing, and they're dead, and in their grave, awaiting the first resurrection. They did the work they were called to do, and the day they were called to do it. So did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So did the prophets of old. That's history. Now, God is calling another people. Someone else. These guys are dead. They're gone. Pushing up daisies. Most of them have turned to dirt by now. Not even their bones probably remain. Unless some were mummified and may have survived this long. But it still won't be a pretty sight. We are alive and remain. We are here because God showed us and has told us to bring forth fruit and to be a light to the world. He has called us to build his end-time temple. Most of the church has gone back into paganism or given up on religion entirely or is sitting wishy-washy, still hoping to go to Petra when the Germans come, and don't have a clue what's really going on. But we do. We know God is going to call leadership. We know he is going to draw a remnant. We know he's going to build his end-time temple better than it was before. We know he is going to restore Jerusalem, and the abomination will be set, and the Assyrian, whoever that may be, will come, along with many other nations, and destroy this nation before that even happens. And he will have a people that he has segregated from the rest, and will protect, and will provide for, and they will do the end-time work of God. They are called with as much on the line, as Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel were, as the minor prophets were, as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, God's plan must be completed. And those men and women of Hebrews 11 aren't around. They had big shoes. Someone must wear them. God has even used them as types from the past and assigned their names to some here at the end to do and go beyond what those from the past did. A powerful end-time work ushering in the kingdom of God. 
Now let me tell you, David, Sarah, Rebecca, Abraham, Jacob, take it seriously. You're called to do the job those people did. You're called to go beyond them and be greater than they. And some of the last will be first. With that knowledge, with this understanding, you have received much. Much is expected of you. Not thirtyfold, not sixtyfold. Let's shoot for a hundredfold, shall we?